Welcome to our next episode of INTR 1001 After the Lecture. I am James Brasington, the General Committee Officer for the Society, and it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Rory Medcalf, the Head of the National Security College at the ANU. His professional background involves three decades of experience across diplomacy, excuse me, intelligence analysis, think tanks, academia, and journalism, including founding director of the International Security Program at the world-renowned Lowy Institute. Professor Medcalf is an internationally recognized leader of thought regarding the Indo-Pacific, and it is thus my absolute pleasure to have him on our show today, speaking about a career in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you for joining us, Professor. My pleasure, James. Great. Uh, well, to start off with, what is the uh, the relation between the Indo-Pacific and the Asia-Pacific, uh, especially seeing as the ANU in particular has a, a college of the Asia-Pacific? Is the Indo-Pacific the, the modern, more expansive iteration of the region Australia finds itself in? Well, thanks for starting the interview on one of my favourite research topics, which which sounds a little bit kind of esoteric, but I think actually relates very closely to the big issues of strategy and foreign policy and Australia's place in the world. So uh, the Indo-Pacific is, it seems to be some newfangled uh, term to describe our region. After all, Australia is surrounded by, among other things, the Pacific and Indian oceans. Um, although I guess we've got a Southern Ocean uh, as well. However, uh, if, as I hope your listeners will do, you um, read my recent book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, uh, free advertisement there, um, you'll see that it actually has a long history. And the argument that I make is that the way that a lot of governments are now choosing to describe the region, that is the Indo-Pacific, is in fact a historically more valid and accurate uh, norm, if you like, than the Asia-Pacific, We've got to remember that the term Asia-Pacific was basically invented uh, around the 1970s, really didn't become popular till the 80s or 90s. And in itself, it's kind of a strange conflation of East Asia, the Pacific and North America. The Indo-Pacific brings back, a, a, I guess, a larger canvas of the two oceans, the Indian and the Pacific. The two uh, or three, if you like, key parts of maritime Asia, um, South Asia centered on India, East Asia centered on China, and Southeast Asia centered on the Indonesian archipelago, and makes them, I guess, one continuum of commerce and trade and strategy and diplomacy. And that's precisely, my argument uh, would be, that's precisely what we're seeing in the world uh, today over the last 10 to 15 years into, into the foreseeable future. And that is, a, I think, a perfect de definition of Australia's geographic place in the world. There are lots of other strategic implications we can get to if we have time, especially about China. But just on the ANU point that you made, uh, look, I've got nothing against the, uh, the fine College of Asia and the Pacific, to use its full title here at ANU. In fact, the, the academic part of my own college, the National Security College, is kind of nested within uh, CAP, College of Asia and the Pacific. But even when ANU was established in the 1940s, if you read its founding documents and the, the foundational speeches in parliament and so on, South Asia and the Indian Ocean were always part of the Asia uh, that ANU was meant to come to terms with. So I kind of think that Indo-Pacific takes us full circle, if you like. Oh, fantastic. It's a perfect introduction to a very 
very engaging topic. Um, and in your your personal experience, your career seems to be almost the uh, the IR or security student's dream. Uh, you've worked in uh, academia, foreign policy white papers, government research, diplomacy, intelligence. Uh, where did it all begin? Have you always had an interest in security? Although I guess so. A friend of mine who's a journalist once introduced me at a, um, a public event and listed all of those uh, twists and turns of my career and basically concluded that uh, Rory Medcalf has, has never had an honest job. Um, and um, that's fine. But look, I, I've always been interested in really in history, to be honest. I mean, I, I could just as easily have seen myself pursue a um, a career as a as a historian or as a journalist or you know in some kind of political area, I guess I've always been interested in that those big challenges of nations and societies making their way in the world. You know the the vicissitudes of history uh, was always a huge consumer of like, not only European and Australian history but Asian Asian history very much, uh, which I probably actually uh, know better than American history, which is pretty unusual for some Australians, um, military history. Uh, and so, look, I, I, I guess what I'm doing now is a, um, a synthesis of the many twists and turns that I've taken from journalism through um, foreign affairs, intelligence, think tanks and so on. And it does all seem to converge now. Um, but I guess if, and I'm very happy to go into this conversation if you want, I guess if you're looking for signposts or advice or pointers for people embarking on careers in this space. Uh, what I've learned is very much that uh, don't be one track about it. It's good to, it, there's actually nothing wrong with having a, a zigzag career uh, that takes you into different areas uh, because in the end, what we do as, uh, as academics, as think tank experts, as government analysts, as journalists, it's all about um, drawing meaning, drawing meaning out of knowledge, and understanding the and interpreting and acting on the contemporary history uh, that's happening around us. Fantastic, thank you. And what was it about the the Indo-Pacific in particular that drew your interest? Uh, you spoke about the uh, sort of conglomeration of challenges uh, that we're, that we're finding across the globe. Was your were your roles uh, and postings in New Delhi and Japan? Um, did they influence an interest in the Indo-Pacific or were they after that interest was developed? Oh, look, again, it's, I mean, so I, I probably only started using the term Indo-Pacific about probably about 13 years ago, which is um, not so long ago in a sense. I mean, it's, it became a commonly used term in government policy from around 2013 onwards. But um, as I said, I've, I've tracked its provenance back to at least the 1850s, so it's not quite so new. But my own interest, I guess, formed somewhat organically. In a way, in a way Indo-Pacific gave me a name to call what I was already observing from the 1990s when I started in diplomacy. And that is when I became a DFAT officer, a, a junior diplomat back in the mid-90s. Gareth Evans was our foreign minister. Uh, you know, seemingly a different world and in some ways a more optimistic world. Uh, there was this obsession with the Asia Pacific, but there was this artificial mental map, uh, in fact, a, a, a real map that Gareth used to use that basically showed Australia's world stopping somewhere around the Thai-Burma border, somewhere off, just off the coast of Western Australia. Um, and look, to be polite or impolite, it was almost a kind of flat earth concept of of our region it, it had its obvious limits 
I then found in my uh, relatively short time in DFAT, I had three really interesting overseas assignments in, um, uh, in Tokyo and Bougainville, and then particularly in New Delhi, uh, and did a lot of work on a thing called the ASEAN Regional Forum, which is one of those um, institutions that a lot of us think we understand until we encounter it, and then it's bewildering. Uh, but in other words, I had a lot of contact with multilateral Asian diplomacy as well. And I guess what I began to realise is that the, the mental map that we had had imposed on us as DFAT graduates in the mid-90s, that is the Asia-Pacific mental map, which I do think is still uh, a bit of a doctrine in some sort of shadowy corners of academia, um, you know, and, I, and I'm very keen to sort of debate that, that that mental map was not universally held or recognised and that in fact there were other very valid worldviews that we needed to come to terms with. And, and yes, India was a formative experience for me in that because I spent three years in Delhi uh, at the turn of the century, 2000 to 2003, uh, encountering completely different, uh, what seemed to be completely different worldviews. You know, I arrived in Delhi um, a year before 9-11 and lo and behold, India was already deep into its sort of long struggle against jihadist terrorism. India was already grappling with Chinese power every day, if you like. Um, India was already grappling with a lot of the resource constraints, the climate change issues, um, the issues of social cohesion. A lot of the issues that we now think are the normal um, menu of national security and foreign policy. But you go back to the Australia 20 years ago, and we were virtually grappling with none of those issues at the time. So in a strange way, um, India was actually ahead of Australia in its worldview, even though, you know, it's very easy to observe that India is a developing country and it's got lots and lots of problems of its own and its worldview is maybe a little bit foreign to ours. So I guess three years in India did uh, have a formative role on my, um, on my outlook and part of my mission from that point onwards was it was partly about how to improve the Australia-India relationship because I genuinely saw a convergence there that we were missing. We were these estranged democracies uh, with a lot of room for, um, for growth and strengthening. But it was also, it also then became about how to think about Australia in a larger and more flexible uh, region and space in the world and how to be adaptive and not get stuck in the, the orthodoxies of a different era. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Um, I realise we didn't script this one, but do you think there was a reason? Was it just being stuck in the orthodoxies of a bygone era, as you were as you were talking about, that Australia wasn't, uh, I suppose, engaging with uh, India in the way that we do with the term Indo-Pacific? So the Australia-India relationships, you know, another whole topic, if you like, and um, uh, but but I do think that just as you know, Australian foreign policy types like to pride themselves on being uh, pretty aware of our region, of Asia, of the Asia-Pacific, whatever you want to call it. In fact, India and South Asia were something of a blind spot. Uh, and it's even not that long ago that, you know, you, you could probably find the average person in an Australian um, state government, for example, would be quite willing to serve uh, visiting Indian delegations, meat pies, because they just had an idea that vegetarianism is the standard in Indian culture. So you know, there, was, there was a pretty appalling cultural ignorance there. And I think there was equally a kind of a, a policy blind spot towards India and a sense that, um, you know, India had never really been helpful or our friend. Uh, and the Indians in turn had their own blind spot where they 
honestly thought 20 years ago that Australia was some kind of relic of the British Empire uh, with a fundamentally anti-Indian outlook. And so I guess I've done a little bit to help bridge that um, completely pointless gulf of misunderstanding and misperception. And I think we've made a lot of progress on that journey, partly driven by the, the large uh, Indian community or diverse Indian communities inside Australia, but also the, the increasingly modern outlook of, um, of both countries. So I guess that was one one element there, uh, and that would be another whole uh, recording for you if you ever wanted to delve into that. But, but the good news is Australia and India are now on uh, a, a really significant track of cooperation and mutual understanding. There'll still be problems, of course there will, uh, and Indian democracy is far from perfect, but um, we've now got something to build on. And so a missing piece of the regional puzzle has been, um, has been filled. Fantastic, thank you so much. How have you managed your adaption to so many roles uh, in the ever-changing field of security? Has it been difficult? Yeah, that's the, well, it's been fun, I think. And I, look, I think the, again, this is where I, I put on the um, the old grey beard kind of advice to people. Um, and that is that we've got to remain really flexible, flexible, agile, adaptable, all those sort of irritating words in the way that we think about our careers in this space. Um, and I guess I always like that just whether it was through impatience or personality or luck or whatever it might be, um, you know, the idea of spending sort of 30 or 40 years in DFAT and coming out at the other end with, you know, uh, a medal and an ambassadorship and a nice retirement speech really wasn't satisfying. The idea of uh, a long-term purely academic career, likewise, um, journalism's a lot of fun, but it's an industry in grave you know, grave danger, frank, frankly, although we need good people to go into it. Um, and also, I guess I was inspired by, and still am inspired by people who are willing to take some risks in their careers. Uh, and in the Australian system, that's not actually the norm. Um, that's why you find uh, so few uh, policy officials stepping out mid-career or late career to do something different and to share their wisdom or lack of wisdom in the, in the public debate. That's why um, academics generally, with some honourable exceptions, including from this university, but academics generally don't have enough cut through with policy because they often don't want to get their hands dirty um, playing in the policy space or, or heaven forbid, actually going and working in that space for a while where they discover how actually incredibly difficult it is uh, to make meaningful policy on anything day to day. So I think it's a, it's a kind of a sensibility, James, of being open to, open to change and not getting stuck with the, the formulaic way that a lot of us respond to challenges. I mean, I think as students, and I still recall my uh, student days, you know, as students, you learn certain formulas. Uh, there's a certain way to do a really good research essay. There's a certain way to argue your case. There's a certain um, intellectual vocabulary that you know is going to uh, please your, your marker or your supervisor. But you also know it's a game. And in the moment you, you've, you lose sight of the fact that at one level it's a game, I think is a, is a trap. And the same thing happens precisely if you work in a bureaucracy or if you work in a political office or if you work on a newspaper or in a think tank or an intelligence agency. So as long as you can keep a bit of poise and you, a, bit of, a bit of distance uh, and you can be adaptable in this, the way you process information, uh, one thing I strongly recommend and one thing that we uh, I certainly encourage in the courses I teach at the National Security College is uh, really 
obliging students to work in very, very different thinking and writing styles within the scope of a single course. So, you know, writing a policy brief or a debrief on a scenario, but also writing a really good research essay um, and being able to pivot the completely different writing styles and thinking styles uh, from one day to another. That's, that's really the, um, the skill that we need. Fantastic. That's, a, that's a very valuable advice for any students who are listening. Um, just on that advice front, uh, networking is a challenge that many of our listens, listeners are going to begin to face at some point, uh, perhaps already have. Do you have any advice for those that are new to the concept? Well, um, you mean networking in terms of talking, getting known by people uh, in order to uh, improve your, um, your reputation and your career? Essentially, yep, that's the one. Okay, so we're not talking net network-centric warfare there. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Now look, students are engaging in that just yet. Yes. Yeah, so if you work in, if you work in policy or analysis, you know, you should actually, at one level, be a people person. And even if, like a lot of scholars, you know, we sometimes like to be um, a little bit introverted and and sort of, you know, we're never happier than if we're sort of surrounded by books or doing online research or just writing. Nonetheless, you've got to really understand people. And I think that, let's face it, all policy, all foreign policy, all security policy, um, all diplomacy, all conflict in the end is about uh, human psychology. So uh, don't lose sight of that and uh, try to translate some of the, you know, the, the book learning, if you like, into, uh, your, into your, your professional relationships. Uh, I think that having a, a good career in this space, especially if you want to have that kind of mobile career that I've had, it does mean um, it, it is very much about reputation and networks. And it's not, I think it's not about some kind of superficial, ruthless networking where essentially you just want to always be seen or always be present or, or, or always be on top of the issue. Um, it's also about integrity and reputation. So I think the first thing is, um, you know, be be known for doing good work, and um, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean always be a shameless self promoter. But there does have to be some self promotion because it's a competitive space. Um, ask the right questions. I think, for example, uh, again, you know, we try certainly in the courses I teach uh, at NSC to bring in very senior um, experts, sometimes serving senior policy practitioners, sometimes recent former policy practitioners who are still extremely well connected in this in this town, because incidentally, being in Canberra is a huge advantage. Uh, there's still nothing like face to face. And that's why the COVID lockdowns are pretty damn frustrating. Um, but you know, if a student is interested in a career in this space, whether it's to go into a policy agency or an intelligence agency, um, you know, at a junior level uh, and work their way up or sideways, whether it's maybe to work in a political office or, or, or in a think tank, um, you do have to stand out. And, and standing out doesn't always mean that you are the uh, most relentless or the noisiest person in the room, but you may be the one that genuinely asks the thoughtful question maybe makes the one thoughtful observation um, reframes an issue in a way that the supposedly wise uh, wise old policymaker in front of you hasn't heard before because don't forget you know the um, the seniors in this space get pretty jaded and run out of ideas themselves pretty fast so they are on the lookout for new ideas and unlike me 
in answering your question, you are succinct about it. <laughs> and I think if you do those things, uh, you begin to get known. Um, and I think a lot of it is, you know, there's a word that, especially in the public service in DFAT or ONI or places like that, there's a word that's often used and that is judgment. You know, show good judgment. And that just isn't, isn't your good judgment as someone who, um, you know, knows the literature or knows the issues, uh, but also knows what to say when and what not to say when. Fantastic. Thanks, Professor. Um... You know, and, and be a team player, I think. is you know, it, It's a weird paradox there. You know, get known, but also get known as a team player from day one, I think. Sure. Is it, uh, I assume it's a skill set that you develop over time as well and that uh, experience helps with. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's, you know, it is ultimately, you know, it is not something, I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, obviously, given where I work and what I do, I'm a big fan of education, but it's also a skill set that you are generally not going to acquire uh, in the classroom. It's right. between the um, I had another question, uh, a little bit different, on the role of social media. Um, what sort of role does it play in the modern security career? As many academics uh, and professionals, of course, have their own private accounts, but is there, there, is there information out there on social media that you won't find in, uh, in research journals and the news? Yeah, that's a great question. And that, that goes to, uh, uh, that prompts at least three disconnected thoughts, <laughs> which I'll cut them off when you, you're ready. Look, the first thing is that uh, I think unless you are working in some kind of very uh, esoteric, you know, purely theor theoretical or purely historic um, uh, research area, it's a good idea to be connected with social media in some way, even though it's an extraordinary time waster too. So you've got to have more discipline than I have in the amount of time you spend on social media to use it fruitfully, but, it, but do use it in a discerning, discriminating way. I find it particularly useful for information gathering um, and at least as useful as a sort of filter of information uh, and a very prompt, rapid, ahead of the curve filter of information than as a, a platform for projection. Um, and at the moment, I think, including me, a lot of academics probably spend too much of our social media time uh, either promoting our ideas or promoting the ideas that we like or, or other people's work, rather than simply using it to distill and discover. Um, because there are things out there that can be found either more quickly via social media or in a different shape or format via social media than you will find certainly in um, any established academic literature, because unfortunately, a lot of, on a lot on so many of the current issues, you know, you have to wait typically twelve to twenty-four months before you see what is big and matters in a very fast-changing world being reflected in the academic literature. Given the absurdly long time that a lot of you know journal articles take to get reviewed, edited, processed, and so forth, so I think I do think that good research in this space needs to be a kind of a, a, um, a combination of obviously the established literature, theoretical frameworks, but also primary sources that range from um, political speeches, policy speeches, interviews, right the way through to what was on your Twitter feed this morning. And we need to find ways to, uh, to quality control that and reflect that in our research, whether it's academics or on blogs or wherever. Within government, and this is where 
for those of um, those listeners who may be interested in careers in government. Again, within government, it's it's a similar opportunity and challenge. I mean, I wrote a blog post ten years ago or so when again when social media analysis was at a much more primitive stage than it is now. Uh, where I made a couple of big calls on a particular geopolitical incident that had just occurred. Um, it was the first test flight, I think, of a Chinese um, stealth fighter um, during a visit by the US Defence Secretary to China. And I followed a number of um, aviation fanatics in Singapore who in turn followed Chinese language um, aviation fanatics and sort of you know military hardware um, pornographers and you know, pe- sort of people who just like to hang around airports watching for new new things flying in and out. And their coverage of this, um, you know, the synthesis of their coverage of this test flight of this Chinese stealth fighter that is basically uh, based on, you know, stolen blueprints uh, from, uh, from uh, American aircraft, their coverage was faster and more accurate than I'm pretty confident the kind of analysis that was going on inside governments and intelligence agencies. It took them at least 24 hours to form the same picture that we formed on social media. And the news media, the regular mainstream news media, were not ready to report this for another day or so because, again, they could not verify their sources. So big fan, but use it discriminatingly. Uh, We all need to form our own sort of protocols for that because you can easily just disappear into a social media echo chamber for hours on end um, and get nothing out of it except, um, you know, cute cat videos, basically. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Very much. And, and I think, again, um, anyone who comes up with their own successful formula for how to do this uh, is onto a winner that they should, um, they should share once they've um, got the patent on it. Yeah. Well, there it is. We'll keep, uh, keep our ears open for that, I suppose. Um, well, fantastic. Thanks, Professor. Uh, I had, just before we finish off, actually, um, we usually like to finish off with a reading recommendation. Uh, is there anything you'd like to tell us about your book that you mentioned earlier or something else that you've read, perhaps? Look, lots of, lots of recommendations. Um, so, in fact, and it's a shame we're, we're not filming this because I have a book in front of me that I would put in front of the camera at the stage, but I'll just have to talk about it instead. The best book I'm reading at the moment uh, is called The Dark Valley, A Panorama of the 1930s by Piers Brendan. So it's essentially a history history of the 1930s, published about 20 years ago, but an incredibly rich, dense, rewarding history of that awful dark decade. And I've had it on my shelf for years, and after the PM speech last week where he, he sort of invoked the spectre of the 1930s, I thought I'd better actually read this thing. Um, it's utterly brilliant, uh, and it's just... Again, a reminder that um, students should really, or, or policy scholars or whatever we might plan to be, that we should always read, we should always read widely. Um, I'm a big fan of reading lots of history and a bit of fiction as well. Um, I think don't just read in the lane of your chosen discipline um, because uh, I, th- I think in many ways, uh, you know, the original analysis is going to come from that much more multidisciplinary approach. Fantastic. Um, and just to, just to tack on, if we have some time, I was going to ask, do you have any, any brief thoughts on the, uh, the most recent white paper that's come out, increasing our defence expenditure, for example? Well, I also think that students should read documents like that. The, the, um, the, the defence update, which is, I guess it's not strictly a white paper, it's essentially a, an adjustment to 
the white paper of uh, four years ago uh, on which I was an, an advisor. It is actually a good read um, because again, we, we don't, we shouldn't underestimate the amount of time and revision and agony that goes into drafting these documents, sort of dozens of drafts, you know, a whole lot of agonizing over particular words and how they're going to resonate. And of course, probably great disappointment when most readers gloss over it or, or, or miss the point. It's a really important document uh, and it's available online and students should read it. It is only, I think it's around 50 pages or so. There's also a much longer force structure document that goes with it. Um, but it's, it rewards careful reading because it does reflect, I think, a sanitised version of the, the very real strategic judgments that government is reaching about our very difficult international environment at present and how it's not going to get any better in a hurry and how Australia can position itself for that. Um, and it's also obviously a much more um, nuanced document than a lot of the media coverage would reflect. So I, again, I think it's really important to read these documents uh, as well as the, the simplistic headlines that come out. I think the, the snapshot that I walked away with from that defence update is a confirmation that despite all of the uh, economic pain we're going through with COVID-19, despite the public health disaster of COVID-19 and all of the other transnational challenges on the horizon, it is quite striking that, uh, that the Australian government, not I think for narrow political reasons, but because of the, uh, the genuine analysis that goes on in the intelligence and policy communities, the Australian government has accepted that it can't afford to let defence spending slip, um, not only the 2% that we aimed for a few years ago with the white paper, but probably a bit more than that. And then in particular, um, the period of risk of uh, crisis confrontation in our region uh, is such that we can't afford to wait the 20 years until new submarines uh, come online. Um, we're going to have to need a more active, more robust Australian Defence Force in the meantime. Uh, so I think read it, form your own judgments, and again, keep your eyes open. I think, you know, I not everyone is going to want to be a policy maker or a policy analyst, and we all, I think, should rightly keep a very critical eye on government policy and national security. But studying the kinds of things we do is good, whether you want to be a policy maker or just a, um, a very informed and critical consumer of um, and critic of policy. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Professor. Um, so this has been the most recent episode of INTR 1001 after the lecture. Thank you again to Professor Medcalf and we'll see you uh, in two weeks time for our next episode.